0: From the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod.
1: You may know Brian Stelter as the tireless chief media correspondent for CNN, where he anchors the Reliable Sources show on Sundays. He's also the author of a new book, Hoax, Donald Trump, Fox News, and the Dangerous Distortion of Truth, which is already a bestseller. I sat down with Brian this week to talk about the book, The Turbulent Relationship Between Trump and the Media, and also Brian's own unique story, which in a few short years has taken him from precocious schoolboy blogger to a central role in commenting on American media today. Brian Stelter, welcome. It's good to be with you. You've got this uh, great new book, Hoax. Donald Trump, Fox News, and the dangerous distortion of truth, and I want to talk to you about that. But we got breaking news, as they say <laughs> at CNN and elsewhere. Yes. We got breaking news, so I want to talk about that first. Bob Woodward's book is out. Uh, as usual, he has some nuggets that are interesting. The most interesting of which, and the most sort of shocking of which, is the president yeah. on tape telling him that uh, he is uh, that he knew. This was in early February that he knew, February 7th. He knew that this was a grave, perilous threat. Uh, and according to Woodward, he had been briefed 10 days earlier on that fact. This was at a time when he was downplaying the whole thing. Uh, kind of a, a remarkable story.
2: It, it is. It's, um, it's filling in some of the gaps in our knowledge about what Trump was doing or not doing during those key weeks in January, February, and March. And uh, if I may say, I'm glad Hoax came out before Rage, uh, Woodward's book Rage. Yes. But uh, they, they they work well together because I, I talked about the Fox side of how Fox mishandled the pandemic and how Trump, you know, in some ways was, was reacting to Fox. Woodward is filling in a lot of key information about what was going on inside the White House at that same time in February. I think we all know in our guts, David, that there's a lot of blame to go around, a lot of responsibility to be shared for what went wrong last winter, including with mayors and governors. But Trump had the biggest megaphone by far, in the same way that Fox had the biggest megaphone on t v Trump had the biggest megaphone by far mm-hmm. and he any he, and he misused it,
1: yeah, well, you know very clearly, he misled the American people about the gravity of the situation and and uh, because of that, and because he was intent on doing that, uh, we lost valuable time, and we know what the consequences of that were. You know, in your book uh, "Hoax," uh, which we will talk about uh, in detail uh, in a minute, um, you, you know, you suggest that Trump uh, that there was this negative sort of feeding loop between Trump and Fox News on the pandemic, and then Fox News was playing down uh, the pandemic. Uh, this piece of news. Uh, that and you suggest that, that not just on this but on many things that that Trump basically takes cues from what he sees on Fox News uh, as well as sort of I guess sending some back but on <laughs> right. this uh, on this uh, you know clearly he wasn't taking cues from Fox News because he knew the truth uh, but he was letting them amplify his own attempts to downplay this so that he didn't have to uh Interrupt what he felt was his calling card to get reelected, which was a strong economy.
2: Right, he was using the Fox platform to try to uh, to um, paper over reality of what was really going on. You know, saying in the middle of February that you know this supposedly dies with the warmer weather in April. You know,
1: well, yeah. At one point he said, "Oh, fewer than fifteen people would get the virus." I mean, there were there were, there. You could put a whole um, uh, half hour. Uh, reel together of his various comments downplaying the virus during that period.
2: And the most the most damning one was on February 28th. It's it's why this book is called Hoax. It wasn't going to be called Hoax pre pandemic. But I rewrote the entire beginning and the entire ending once our lives were all upended by this virus. It's on February 28th when he goes to South Carolina when Americans have already died of the virus and we just didn't know it because there weren't enough tests. And and he says at that rally, he says the Democrats are politicizing the coronavirus. You know that, right? Coronavirus. They're politicizing it. This is their new hoax. So he is giving this permission to downplay and, and ignore what's happening, even though, as the Woodward tapes show, He was well aware of the threat.
1: Well, of course, hoax is the word that he has used many times to describe the Russia (laughs) probe, to describe the impeachment proceedings, uh, most recently to describe the reports about what he said about American servicemen and uh, fallen soldiers. Uh, So this is a code word for Trump, and he and he has used it extensively. Code is interesting. Code word.
2: It's a signal to the audience to. Yeah. disbelieve. Yeah.
1: Well, he yeah. is a man of many dog whistles we know. And this is this is one of them. And and, and Fox amplifies it. Uh, I mean, the word hoax comes from Hannity's mouth often uh, right. in regard to the very same stories. Um, yeah. So we'll, we'll get back to all of this. Uh, but I want to ask you about Woodward himself, who, mm. you know, I mean, I was a young person inspired to journalism like many others, in part by Woodward and Bernstein uh, back in the day, uh, uh, covering Watergate. And, you know, he's sort of made an industry of these kinds of books. And people know, I mean, I I was in the Obama administration and there were a couple of books written uh, about the period when I was there. I talked to Woodward as much out of interest (laughs) to see his methodology as anything else. But people talk to him always, I guess, with the intent of kind of influencing his reporting and oftentimes they get bitten in the ass for doing it <laughs> the president of the united states had 18 interviews
2: with bob woodward like what were they thinking <laughs> what was the president thinking he was trying to impress woodward and and in rage, it's pretty clear that's what that's what these calls were about in fact at one point trump says i want a good book from you meaning you know i want a positive book because uh Fear, uh, Woodward's first book uh, from 2018, uh, was uh, certainly a harsh assessment. Remember at the time, Trump complained and, uh, you know, Woodward didn't call me. Well, of course, of course, Woodward tried to call and his interview requests were turned down. And and the basic message from Trump after Fear, after the book Fear, was call me again. I will talk to you this time. I will cooperate. I, and. You know, it's this attempt to woo, to impress. It's what Trump does to everybody. He's, he's probably man. tried to yeah. do it to you. He's tried yeah. to do it yeah. to yeah. me. Yeah. I remember when he, he saw me in twenty sixteen when when my show was so critical of his, his misleading statements and media bashing. I remember he pointed at me and said, Good show, good show. You know he, yeah. He's just you know, he's always trying to win people over. And with Woodward he's done the opposite. Woodward ends the book by saying this man is not the the right man for the job.
1: Yeah. No, it's uh it's really Stunning. Some of some of his, you know, the the his bragging to Woodward about Kim Jong Un's flattering letters and, you know, how Kim Jong Un refers refers to him as excellency and so on. I mean, it is it is uh, really incredible stuff. But uh, uh, but. You know, shocking at once, but not necessarily. Uh, I mean, it's appalling, but not necessarily surprising. Actually, when you when you think about it. But listen, I want to talk about you, and I want to talk about your book. And actually, you you wrote, uh, I think, a uh, paragraph or two about your life in this book in in the <laughs> uh, preamble to the book. Um, but you know, you are uh, you are now a very visible figure. Uh, in covering the news media, and you've been a very outspoken uh, critic of Trump and, uh, uh, and his uh, bending of the truth and how uh, these things uh, get covered, or sh- and you've spoken about how they should get covered. But I want, the thing that struck me about mm-hmm. you and just uh, getting ready for this podcast, as someone who was a nerdy News junkie at a very young yep. age myself is just how how preternaturally precocious uh, you were about all of this uh your your parents well well, tell me about your parents um first of all and and how you fell into all of this at like <laughs> the age of ten,
2: yeah, something like that. Well, I, I was starting to working on this book, thinking about how to structure it. And I met with a woman named Nell Scavell, this genius writer and comedian who uh, has, has worked with a number of authors in the past. And, and you know, we, we talked about how, how do I write this book as a CNN anchor writing about Fox? And she said, um, tell your own story. Explain who you are and why you are right to write about this topic. And that's why in the beginning of Hoax, I do share a little bit about um, how I've been obsessed with TV news since I was a kid. And how I basically been covering Fox for 16 years. I I think it goes all the way back to when I was five years old, David. And uh, I wanted to be a trash man. I was wait, I'd wait for the trash man (laughs) to show up. And I thought that was so cool. And ever since that, I wanted that job. The only other job I've ever wanted in my life is is to be a journalist.
1: I'm trying think to get my hands seven. around the the uh, the symbolism <laughs> the of being either a two? trash man and a oh yeah and, but uh oh but, yeah somebody's uh,
2: gonna have fun with that <laughs> but I, I, by the time I was eight years old I was calling into the local stations in DC WUSA WJLA reporting the snow totals mm-hmm. for my town and You know, there's this strange sensation where they'll say your name on TV when you're a kid. Well, Brian in Damascus, he has 10 inches of snow on the ground. Yeah. They have no idea. Almost No idea that you're
1: barely over 10 inches yourself. (laughs) Right. Uh,
2: but I you, think even that those were little early signs of this obsession with TV. But what,
1: what, what was it? What was it that drew you? What was it? Because your your dad ran an, a, an appliance repair company. Your mom was a nurse. Yeah. It's not like they were yeah. steeped in government. You did grow up in no, the suburbs no. of Washington, but they weren't. They weren't uh, uh, steeped in, uh, in. No, my in-
2: own, my dad's only connection to, to the government was uh, was fixing Gloria Borger's appliances, uh, which is amazing to me because I was just on TV with Gloria <laughs> twenty minutes ago. Uh, but but to me that was his brush with celebrity yeah. that he knew then a CBS star you know Gloria Porter yes um i do think it actually this is, this might sound silly maybe not i do think it was important that our house in suburban maryland had the tv antenna to point it toward dc and not baltimore we could have gotten both states we could have gotten either city's tv stations i'm glad we were pointed toward washington um because i was able to soak up washington news and local tv from dc and uh you know my um my uncle kurt uh worked for the senate worked in 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 the senate building uh you were a page there at one time i was a page at one point which is which is which is a thrill so i had these little i had that kind of that typical you know look on the outside peering in a little bit sort of experience um but uh what what was it about the tv news um
1: you also don't you know. you also were an earlier <laughs> uh, an early embracer of uh, the internet, right? Social right. media. Well, thank,
2: thank goodness, my dad's dad, my grandpa, got us a computer, you know, bought us a computer when when I was five years old, hooked us up to Prodigy and to AOL, you know, these dial-up modem services in the mid nineteen nineties, and I taught myself HTML and learned how to make websites, and it was amazing to me that. You know, you could, as a 10, 11, 12 year old, create a website, gain an audience. Um, you know, this is crazy. Like, this is the Wild West of the World Wide Web. So I created this website about Goosebumps books by R.L. Stein, Nintendo Games. David, it was competitive back then. There were other websites about Nintendo games. There were <laughs> these rivalries. Like, things got kind of nasty in the chat rooms. But I look back and it was this really innocent time compared to the sewer of the Internet today. Well,
1: let me, let me ask you about your, just one more question about this. Were you, I mean, you get the impression of a guy who, a young guy who was sort of in a world of his own creation here. I mean, (laughs) and I'm wondering, were you doing the things other kids were doing? Were you hanging out? Were you playing sports? Were you, or was this your
2: world? This was most of my world. And, uh, it wasn't that I was in an unhappy family. I was the oldest child I had two great young i have two great younger- younger brothers um but uh you know I wasn't the fastest swimmer. I definitely wasn't the the fastest basketball player um this was my thing this was my hobby uh and my parents let me go wild with it. Right. And, and be making phone calls to Japan in the middle of the night because I want to reach someone in Tokyo, talk about Nintendo games because yeah. they're based yeah, that's in That's pretty indulgent. That kind of, that kind yeah. of craziness. Right. And, and they were putting up with the phone bills for it. Yeah. I, I think the other key of this that I, I guess I never, I never talk about is, is when my dad died. When yeah. I, was I want to teen. ask you about that. Yeah. You know, the internet and these websites and this ability to create something and have an identity online. Um, Mattered a lot.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, listen. I I read that, and I have some sense of it because my dad died when I was when I was nineteen, and very Mm -hmm. very suddenly different circumstances. He he was he committed suicide, but it was, uh, but it 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 is a um, it, it's it is a life changing. Before and after. Yeah, yeah there's a, there's I a mean exactly. Exactly. And an after. Yes.
2: January twentieth, my dad in two thousand and one, my dad took me to D.C. for Bush's inauguration. I was so excited uh, to get a ticket to be on the the lawn of the Capitol. And uh, he had had a heart attack two months ago, and so um, we two kind of had a that, sense yeah, yeah. that he had to be yeah. he had to he had to be careful. Um, he, he was. And I think he was trying to take time off, trying to relax. But he was willing to take me to D.C. I dragged him down there to go with me. To a couple of event, events that weekend, and and then seven days later, he he had a he had a massive heart attack. Coaching your brother's his,
1: basketball team. Yeah,
2: yeah, and thankfully I wasn't there, but but Kevin, my brother, was. My mom was. Um, we were able to say goodbye though. He was in the hospital for two weeks uh, before it was clear that that this was over. Um, and uh, a lot of the memories of that time are blurry, but um, you know, I just I don't know I don't know how my mom somehow got us through it. And what I think about when I look back at that time in 2001, I think people at school, counselors, teachers, friends, you know, they take you under your wing a little bit. They take you under their wing a little bit. They look out for you a little bit more. And I do think that that's the beginning of a chain of dominoes in my life that I don't know if they would have all fallen otherwise, where, you know, you go to a you go to a retreat one summer, you go to a leadership event, then you join the student government and then you do this and you do that. and suddenly you start to have a bit of an identity and a, a bit of a, a, focus.
1: Yeah. Well, you, uh, one focus you didn't have was as a student, apparently, uh, <laughs> that's another way in which I identify with you because you, you know, if you have intense interests outside of the class,
2: right, uh, right,
1: that, that, that kind of suffers, but
2: yeah, it wasn't a standout. I, the, the one class I did care about was newspaper. Yeah. I mean, be able to run the student newspaper and run the student TV channel, like the, to have those, that, I guess I was a mini media mogul in high school. I've never thought about that. Before. <laughs> TV went, and print.
1: You 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 went to, uh uh is it, is it Towson or Towson?
2: Yeah. Towson. That, people always think it's Towson state, even though they dropped that name like 23 years ago. Uh, it's state school outside Baltimore. Um, and uh, it was, it was a big pond, but it, you know, I was able to be a big fish in that relatively you know, decently sized pond. Like well, I was able to, it go there and take over the school paper there as well. And um, I'd like to say that was the most important stepping stone for my career, but it wasn't. It was my blog. It was TV yeah, Newser. Yeah,
1: but that's the thing. You started a blog called TV Newser, or I guess it was called Cable Newser at the time, right?
2: Yeah, because I was anonymous. I figured nobody would take me seriously if they knew I was an 18-year-old college freshman blogging about cable news. But this was a really interesting time in cable news. This was the end of 2003. The Iraq War was raging. We didn't know what we got into as a country. Fox was fox, CNN you know, was was um losing to Fox in the ratings. MSNBC was starting to gain its liberal identity with Keith Oberman. and I felt like nobody cared enough about cable news like i I re- would read The New York Times online and all the stories would be about broadcast news. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking to myself, no, cable's where the story is. Cable's the interesting thing
1: and did you were you sitting in your room watching
2: cable TV all day? A little bit of that, a little bit of that. There wasn't a girlfriend in the picture quite yet. <laughs> uh, this was um, driven largely, though, by the readers, by the by the the consumers of the blog. So I put this tip box in the corner of the screen, just this really easy way to email me anonymously. And it was like an, easier than sending an email. And uh, people would drop in tips and what they noticed on TV and what they saw. And so the blog started to write itself thanks to these contributions. And you know what network took the blog seriously first? Not CNN, not Fox MSNBC. News. It was Fox. Yeah. it was Fox. Those PR that, people yeah. are so smart. They knew, hey, here's this guy. Well, they didn't know who I was. Right. Here's this new website. We can leak things. We can we can send him tips. We can put stuff on this blog. They were very savvy about that. And uh, you also uh, you also were good about
1: sharing ratings, which is of course heroin for people <laughs> in the broadcast <laughs> industry. They can't get enough right. of it, and right. that that made it a, a must read. Uh, blog for for people in the industry um when when did you come out uh when did people (laughs) realize that this uh what we uh, jews would say little pisher in at at (laughs) towson university has this this empire going here that we're all reading
2: i'm searching now to see if i can still find the story oh there it is may 27th 2004 the headline in the new york times was the ultimate cable news guru when not in class.
0: <laughs> oh, actually, <laughs> this is, this is so I haven't
2: looked at this in, in 16 years. So uh, a woman I knew named Lisa Napoli, one of my mentors over the years, she knew my identity. Uh, Howie Kurtz at the Washington Post was also chasing it. But I, I went with Lisa. She wrote the story in the Times and actually the leads about CNN. It says Brian had an important decision to make. A reader sent him a tip that CNN planned to launch a new video news service. He was waiting for CNN PR to respond. The problem was he had to go to class. Jeez, that's <laughs> embarrassing. I'm going to go read that someday. But there you go. I was dealing with CNN 16 years ago. Yeah.
1: I'm embarrassed that you went to class instead of staying on the story. That, to me, is
2: very disappointing. Well, you know what the big problem was? We didn't have Wi-Fi on campus for the first two years. Can you imagine a world without Wi-Fi? <laughs> so I'd have to you know, plug in on these desktop computers and then when we were able to have Wi-Fi on my on my laptop my junior year, it really actually did make the blog much better. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. Not only did the New York Times write about you, but they hired you as soon as you graduate, which seems like a savvy uh, move given the uh, given the platform that you had established. Uh, they they hired you to cover the the industry.
2: The, the, they did. When I was uh, graduating in two thousand seven, um, I think what was happening at the New York Times back then was. This was a print newspaper, this old dinosaur of a newspaper that needed to, um, to, to bring in digital knowledge and digital expertise. And uh, one way you do that is by hiring a blogger, you know, uh, the times hired a number of others uh, like me around the, that time. This was pre paywall. You know, this is yeah. really early on in the New York times. Um, and I came in and I was like the fourth string quarterback on this particular team. You know, there were three other outstanding TV reporters covering the, the beat already and it was an interesting test for me. I had to look around and try to find stories they weren't doing. And in retrospect, the, the, those stories were about online video. They were about Netflix. They were about YouTube. Yeah. They were about the, what, was, what was now emerging as the really important story on yeah. the view. Yeah. But it was, out of, it was out of need to not step on. I was very afraid of stepping on my older colleagues' toes. Yeah. Very afraid about making a bad impression. So I went trying to find stories they weren't doing that, um, that would stand out.
1: That is good training because you have to be more enterprising. It's easy to write about the stuff that is obvious and in front of you, but it's uh, it's harder to go out and find the stories that other people are writing that actually are important. You had a mentor at the Times who is a legendary or was a legendary journalist, and I don't use that term uh, lightly. Uh, David Carr was a mentor to uh, many uh, journalists, not just at the Times but earlier. I think uh, – uh, Jake Tapper is one of those uh, journalists, uh, uh, you know, from uh, the days when David was editing a a weekly in uh, in Washington, D.C. Talk a little bit about him and the impact he had. You're you're 21, 22 years old. Uh, I mean, I grew up in a newsroom shortly after my dad died, actually. And it was the mentorship of great editors that that really shaped my life. Uh, And it sounds like his mentorship helped shape yours.
2: It did. Um, it did. I just pulled his book off my shelf here. I'm in my office in, at CNN in New York. I don't really get to come in very often. So it's nice to be in here. Yeah. And I just pulled his book off the shelf and I wanted to look at what he wrote in the book. This is from 2008 when he wrote his book, The Night of the Gun. And what he wrote was, B, thanks for walking this creaky old man into the future. And I, I think that's, it, that makes me laugh because I, he walked me through the New York Times, right? Like I wouldn't have known how to fit in there. I wouldn't have known how to um, be a timesman, as the as the the term goes, without his guidance. But I, it is true that he, I was also teaching him a little bit about the internet and about blogging and about you know these new, new technologies. So so that mentor mentee relationship was vital, and and also in my personal life, right, living in New York trying to lose weight, trying to get out there, trying to date. Trying yeah, you to had, a, you to had a weight
1: problem. Is that right? <laughs> I,
2: oh, I definitely I wrote about this in the Times, actually. I, I, I created a Twitter account. This is so, st- I'm so embarrassed talking about this. I created a Twitter account to, to tweet everything I ate and all the calories, and I measured it all. And I, Actually, it was about 10 years ago that I wrote a column about how I lost, I guess, 75, 80 pounds by tweeting my diet. Uh, Twitter was so innocent. Talking about innocence, Twitter was so... Twitter was not yet a toxic sewer of trolls. <laughs> Can you imagine no, now? If I tried no, to sounds, tweet sounds my pretty, diet.
1: Pretty, pretty <laughs> useful. Yeah, it reminds me of a politician I knew once who was f- uh, f- about five hundred pounds. He was the Milwaukee County Executive, and each week he oh. would weigh himself on an industrial weight, uh, weight scale, and if, for every pound he lost, various corporations would donate to charities of his choice in milwaukee <laughs> and he lost like a hundred awesome. something pounds doing that that was pre-twitter wow. Pre- yeah pre-twitter, pre-twitter. Twitter was
2: my that was my diet solution i i was very transparent about it and uh and also trying to learn how to use twitter back then but you know i i feel like david also um when when you lose your dad at an early age i think you go through life looking for those yeah figures.
1: yes not yes. dads
2: but dad like figures yes and yes and David and, and Bruce Headlam, who was the media editor at The Times uh, back then, those were those figures for me.
1: We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of The Axe Files. And now, back to the show. You're such an inveterate person. Uh, Uh, watcher of cable news that you
2: actually spied your wife on uh, New York One (laughs) yes I was in the car I was back I was home in Maryland um, for the holidays in the car I think MSNBC sent me a car which I was still very impressed by back then in like 2009 or 2010 I better get the dates right since it's about Jamie, actually. Uh, They sent me a car. They were driving me to D.C. down to the NBC Bureau to do a live shot on MSNBC. I guess I was a sucker for agreeing to do it on the day after Christmas. And I was scrolling through my Twitter feed, and uh, this beautiful girl popped up. She was um uh, covering the snowstorm in new york oh, I was so uh, david i was so jealous i wasn't in new york this day because the snowstorm was amazing and there's nothing i like more than a good uh, uh severe weather event
1: yeah so did you jump so out I, and I, measure the snow or did you just keep going
2: <laughs> i know right yeah i did get to drive around in the uh, cnn snowmobile uh you know the blizzard mobile once and do a day of live shots that was absolutely <laughs> it's like one of my best days at cnn i haven't gotten to cover a hurricane for cnn yet but i want to but i digress i see i see jamie in my twitter feed <laughs> I, uh, I, I, I liked her tweets as well as her photo. I liked her personality on Twitter. And, uh, I messaged the anchorman that she works with in the mornings, Pat Kiernan. Um, I, I knew Pat, I messaged Pat and I said, Pat, does Jamie get a lot of, uh, interest for, you know, does is she single? Does she get a lot of, um, Twitter interest? You know, uh, I forget how I said it, but. It turned out she was newly single, and uh, we started DMing. So I, I do have to credit for all of my criticism of Twitter. I do have to credit Twitter, yes, uh, for meeting my
1: wife. Yeah, we know you've put technology to good
2: use. It's made you more fit. <laughs> it's found you a mate. It's uh, you, not right away though. It I had a I had wooed. It took me nine months to woo her. She wasn't into me, and then I wasn't as into her. And I went you know, and she would see me with other people. And you know, back then, Page Six had nothing better to write about, so. There was an item in page six about me being seen smooching, uh, you know, and it created this whole drama. It is a weird, it was a weird time.
1: You made the switch in 2013 to uh, the cable news industry that you had covered for so long. (laughs) Um, Was that, was that a hard transition from, uh, from print to, uh, to broadcast? I mean, you were you used to broadcast stuff as a kid in your basement, <laughs> right? So uh, you you'd been practicing, I know.
2: I I think I had been practicing in my own mind, uh, but but definitely not on any real stage. I hmm, I have this really bad tendency, David, to block out all bad memories. <laughs> I don't remember anything negative that happens. Yeah, my my wife teased me about it because I you know um, I'll write a book and I'll say it was the most painful thing I've ever done. And then it's out, and I'll say that was a blast. Well, and to I've again.
1: written a book. Books, are, I, I mean, I'm not a I'm not a woman. I can't speak to this, but it's been described to me as like childbirth. Mm-hmm. You you forget mm-hmm. the pain, and you just appreciate I, the product.
2: Yeah. But I think there was some pain back then too. That that's my point about TV. I think there was some. I think that transition was difficult. I mean, I I do remember the having to trying to learn the teleprompter. Trying. He said Roger to Ailes
1: gave you some advice on how to re, how to deal with he the did. prompter.
2: He did it. this. Party. Uh, he he. I was saying, I you know, I, I don't want to wear my glasses on TV, but I can't read the prompter. He said, "Move the fucking teleprompter closer." <laughs> you know, you you don't you don't work for the prompter. The prompter works for you, which sounds so simple, but it was really helpful at the moment. Um, you know, the 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 learning when to interrupt a guest and when not to, learning when to let something go long and when to rap, You I know, mean, just all those basics of TV. You're never going to learn them in a book most people learn them on the local level or learn them, you know, in other ways, jumping straight from the New York times to CNN was wild. But I also think it, it gave me more appreciation for the medium of television, right? It, it, I I find that um, because I'm inside a television network covering the media, I have more appreciation when it goes well. I have more respect for the best of the craft and I have, Even deeper frustration with the failures of the craft. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because I know what the technology can do. I know what these cameras and control rooms are capable of. And when we meet that moment, it is extraordinary. And when we fail and and when we, we, we don't, then it's so disappointing.
1: And we should point out just parenthetically that you are a prodigious writer still and can be seen on the CNN sites uh, and you have your you, you, you write a newsletter each day and so on. So it's not as if you've walked away uh, from <laughs> from writing. Uh, no, in
2: fact, the opposite. I, I think I write just as much as I did at The Times. But I, I think it's important to keep writing because uh, it gives you something to say on TV. Like, that's my approach to the job yeah. is the writing and the reporting is the foundation. And then that gives you something to talk about elsewhere.
1: So when you talk about the highs and lows of, of of television news, and I think this is true of the news business generally, there is this conflict that is more apparent now because of the competitiveness of the industry, which is news as a business versus news as a public trust. And it's always been a delicate balance because you know, news is a public trust, but if you don't make any money, you you don't have a news outlet. And (laughs) now we have, because of social media, cable television, uh, you know, we've seen massive disruption uh, in the industry and uh, frantic frantic competition for eyeballs. Uh, And maybe this is, you know, you may want to comment on that, but it does lead into the discussion of Fox News, how it came to be mm-hmm. and what a what a cash cow it is uh, for the Murdoch family.
2: Right. Right. In my interviews for Hoax, one one of the, the biggest takeaways was um, this obsession with ratings and profits. And and I and I and I want to preface that as 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 you're just saying all these outlets are commercial enterprises. Everybody cares about ratings. Everyone cares about making money. But it came through so much more loudly and clearly at Fox than I've ever heard it at CNN or at an ABC or an NBC. I had an anchor at Fox say to me, "Don't think about us as a television network. Think of us as a profit machine. Everything makes more sense when you view it that way." And and I couldn't help but, but agree with them by the by the end of the process of reporting this that um. When you're when you've been winning for 18 years, the way Fox has in the ratings and when you're expected to to make two billion dollars in profits in the next year, um, that that pressure is overwhelming, perhaps.
1: Roger Ailes uh, had this concept to build a television network that would speak to people like Roger Ailes, uh, a guy from uh, you know, <laughs> and sm- Donald Trump, a small town Ohio, sort of John Birch territory, the kind of place where when. Ailes was growing up, people thought fluoride in the drinking water was a subversive plot and that, com- you know, communists were probably behind it and so on. I mean, that, that was really at the core who Roger was. And he perceived that there was no market, there, that that market was not being served. Uh, and he built a network to speak to people just like him. And it was a brilliant insight, was it not?
2: He and Rupert Murdoch were absolutely right there was a big opening in the marketplace. And furthermore, I think they were able to win over even more consumers who, uh, over time, uh, started to buy into this resentment news, this these grievance politics fight, these food fight sessions between Republicans and Democrats. There was definitely a core audience there from the very beginning. The only caveat of that is it took a little while for folks to find it on the dial, right? The ratings were very low for the first few years. Um, but uh, by, uh, by September 11th, 2001, there was an audience and after 9-11, there was a big audience. Mm-hmm. Uh, you look at the, if you were to chart Fox's ratings, you see this spike on 9-11 that never really goes away.
1: Talk about the, um, tension between people who cover news at Fox news and their primetime, uh, talent who, are, are very much provocateurs and advocates, uh, not, not news people.
2: Right, and they always say that there's this brick wall, this big wall. This, I guess, a Trump term would be a big, beautiful wall between the news <laughs> and the opinion sides. And that's clearly not true when you look at how the newscasts like to play sound bites from Fox and Friends and Hannity, and when uh, the opinion shows bring on re- reporters in the field. Uh, you know, the the the, the wall has been taken down, and 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 the, there's no way to say there's still a wall. But there are still some hours on Fox that that seek to be newscasts, and feel suffocated and squeezed by the pro-Trump propaganda these tend to be the lower rated times a day uh journalists that mostly keep their heads down that are trying to do their their best in a complicated situation and uh that was one of the main reasons why i wrote the book was because i was hearing from all these journalists who were so frustrated about what it's like to be on the inside at this place that lacks leadership in the post post-dales years and um is uh over time every year becoming trumpier and trumpier and trumpier because like i remember the famous meeting you had with ales in 2009 right That mm-hmm. was reported by politico a couple weeks afterwards you know you, you sat down with Ailes and i don't know what you all you all had a had a i don't know what was it that tried to keep control over fox in a way that nobody does now yes Ailes ales was a birther but didn't want his anchors to go full birther yeah for example
1: Yeah. No, he you know, the fact that he was meeting with me uh, was, um, you know, noteworthy. I mean, he you know, he what did he want? uh, You know, he wanted to uh, have a pipeline open. Uh, He wanted to persuade me that they weren't being unfair. Um, but you know, some of the conversation (laughs) was batshit crazy. I had a good relationship with him (laughs) primarily because we were both former political strategists. Uh, we had actually worked in campaigns against each other. Uh, and you know, we could, we spoke like a couple of old war horses in that way. And, um, and so we, we actually had a, a, a good relationship. Um, but I reckon, you know, when when Roger said to me, uh, you know, you've got communists in the White House and what are these czars? And, you know, the president wants to create a national police force and stuff like that. I'm like, I'm like Roger, that's that's just fucking insane.
0: Uh, what are you <laughs> talking
1: about? He said, I'll send you the tape. I'll send you the tape. And then he'd send me a 28 seconds of tape of Obama speaking. It had nothing to do with right. anything that he was uh, right. talking about. But I think he actually believed it and right. i think that quality right. he that was reflected in uh in fox but he he also did have ambitions to uh you know call what you know to 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 say there was this wall and i, I thought of this uh, the other day when uh, uh Jen griffin uh their national security reporter uh, mm-hmm. re- r- uh reported on the story that Jeff Goldberg had written in The Atlantic and basically confirmed details of what Trump had said about fallen soldiers and so on. And um, just the 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 furor that that caused uh, over there. And it it seems like it's more and more difficult to do straight reporting of any kind.
2: Yes. The 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 propaganda balloon does not want to be burst. (laughs) And there's nobody at the top of the company saying report the news no matter what. Yeah. If your correspondent, Jennifer Griffin, gets a big scoop, go with it. Go big with it. Break in. You know, that's how it works at CNN. Right. That's how it works at other networks. It doesn't work the way at Fox anymore. Um, and it, it's partly out of fear of the audience. There's mm-hmm. this fear of ticking off the pro-Trump audience, telling them things they don't want to hear. And so as a result, all those bricks that were taken out of that wall between news and opinion, they get put up around the viewer where the viewer becomes more isolated in this alternative reality yeah. where uh, bad news for Trump or alternative views of Trump don't really break in. And, and I would say that they do once in a while, right? You think about big election night moments, big convention night moments. Chris Wallace is there and other commentators and, and, and experts are there. And they will give a more fair assessment of what's really going on in politics. But Fox's viewers, many of them turn that off. They only turn it back on when the propaganda resumes.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, I I remember talking to Ailes uh, about it because, you know, he left right at the beginning of the Trump era. I mean, he was obviously he left uh, after these uh, reports of uh, uh, of abuse of women by him and others at uh, at Fox. Uh, But I remember him telling me uh, about O'Reilly rushing into his office in a high dudgeon one day when he had changed O'Reilly's script uh, <laughs> and taken out something that he thought was over the over the top, uh-huh, and O'Reilly right. said, "You can't, you can't, you know, they can't uh, mess with my script. I'm Bill O'Reilly, and so on." And uh, and Roger said, uh, "Bill, read your contract. It says the network has final say over your copy." And he said, "Bill, I'm the network." Mm -hmm. so uh just go and do your job and he had that kind of control and i guess one of my questions is what what has the effect yeah you know roger ailes has a very dark uh image in the in the world not just because of the way his his career ended and the, the the rampant kind of sexism and abuse that was reported but because he's associated with a dark darker political uh forces but Um, What has his absence meant at Fox?
2: It has resulted in this leadership vacuum, this power vacuum that Trump has exploited. And uh, this isn't coming from me. It's coming from dozens of staffers at Fox, from the top to the bottom, from the production assistant level to the management who say, you know, there's not that that clear leader who is in firm control, who will uh, tell Sean Hannity when he's gone too far, who will hold him accountable. Uh, when he said something crazy on the air, um, and that's partly Roger's fault, by the way, if we're not grooming that person, not grooming a successor, Yeah, but it's also the Murdoch's responsibility to, uh, to, to make sure the content on the network is not dangerous and irresponsible. And when you look at what happened in February and March with the pandemic, some of it was dangerous and irresponsible.
1: Yeah, Roger. Roger uh, developed these characters, Hannity being one of them, who he plunked, uh, plugged from, uh, plunked from obscurity. Uh, but he was also the one who could control them.
2: Yes. Yeah. And I don't think anybody's even trying to do that right now at Fox News. I, I always think it's so interesting that Roger. Ailes wanted Fox to be viewed in the same league as CBS and CNN and NBC. Like he wanted it to be taken seriously. That was a better business model.
1: He he had been booted out of NBC, so that was particularly irksome to him. (laughs) Yeah, he wanted he wanted to beat them. He wanted to beat them,
2: And, and and he wanted the networks, you know, credibility. He wanted the network to be taken credibly and seriously. Uh, which is which is why he would rein in the talent on some occasions. Look, I mean, Glenn Beck was doing some pretty kooky things against Barack Obama in 2000. Uh, what was it? 11? Um, I mean, there does not. Well,
1: listen, uh, during, I remember when Fox News reported during the 2008 campaign that Obama was educated in madrasas in uh, in Indonesia. Oh, right. And and to their credit, CNN dispatched reporters to report this out and and debunk it. And Fox stepped down from that. But, you know. They, you know, again, look, Roger had that. Roger had that streak,
2: you know. Yeah, no, he definitely did. He believed it in his heart. It feels like now, by the way, we have one of those stories every hour. Yeah. Right. Like that is memorable because that was an insane moment on on Fox, an outrageous moment. You know, now it feels like there's one of those with Trump and Fox every day.
1: By the way, one of the the, one of the meetings that I had with Roger or that Roger was involved in was when uh, Rupert Murdoch was flirting with Maybe even supporting Obama back in two thousand right. and eight, uh, and Roger mm. was frantic about this because he, I think, both ideologically and from a business standpoint, thought this would be a bad move. And he, uh, we, we, we had a meeting with Murdoch, and then Roger was invited in late and was furious about it. this. Was uh, depicted in uh, the recent biopic of of him,
2: right? The loudest voice in the room.
1: We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of The Axe Files. And now, back to the show. The only person who I think is more obsessed with cable news Uh than you is Donald Trump. (laughs) <laughs> uh and
2: uh hey we have something in common
1: i you know people don't like it when i say he has kind of a feral genius for the modern modern media environment but i think that's just an undeniable fact i mean cable tv played a big role in his ascendance here obviously broadcast tv did because they created the character of the apprentice but cable tv um Cable TV was a tool that he used uh, to great advantage in 2016 uh, to get elected. I mean, he he has he understands a fundamental fact which goes to the economics of this business. He's good copy. Like he may even if people (laughs) detest him, he's like the car wreck you can't take your eyes off of. Mm -hmm. And if you light yourself on fire, people will come. And that is that is Donald Trump to this day. But it advantaged him as a candidate.
2: I remember in that summer of 2015, when when Trump was basically becoming number one in the polls in the GOP field, he was holding these rallies, watching those rallies on TV like everybody else and being mesmerized. And uh, took me a little while to to view it, you know, in a more um uh, you know, from a more critical lens and, and ask if he's, what he's saying is true. But as performance art, yes, absolutely mesmerizing. And it is a surprise to me that five years later, more candidates for various offices haven't t- attempted that model. But it takes a certain kind of individual to pull off those rallies.
1: Yeah. Right? Yeah. Do you think, I mean, I know that uh, Jeff Zucker, our boss at CNN, and, and others have done soul-searching about this. Do you think that um, that mistakes were made in terms of the amount of coverage that trump got which was overwhelming compared to the coverage that other candidates got
2: i think that if the other candidates have been holding these big events and uh and saying shocking and newsworthy things including i admit some offensive and racist things right if this if this phenomenon had been happening with other candidates and or in other parties it would have been getting a lot of attention too but but again, in that way, right, Trump does take advantage of what we consider to be news and what we are reacting to and attracting.
1: Yeah, I mean, think about what you're saying. What you're saying is if you behave in sort of outrageous ways, you will be rewarded. And I've always said that, you know, politics is a place where uh, sociopaths can be actually rewarded for their for their misbehavior. Uh, hmm. And. uh so in that sense, there is this symbiosis between Trump and the news media. And he says it all the time. You're going to miss me when I'm gone uh, because I'm good copy. I get eyeballs. And he, you know, that's the way he views the world. Uh, mm-hmm. And he's, he's not wrong about that. And now Fox, as you say, is tied to him uh, because their base and his base are one. And if he turns thumbs down on Fox News, that's a problem for Fox News.
2: It will be. I just don't know to what degree. Uh, My my view is that Fox is bigger than Trump. You know, if if you think about what happened at Fox in 2016 and 2017, Ailes is is forced out, Bill O'Reilly, Greta Van Susteren leaves, um, uh, Megan Kelly leaves, basically all the talent turned over except for Sean Hannity. And the network kept on ticking. Didn't take any hit in the ratings. It proved, and, and I think Trump learned this: that Fox it was bigger than any star. The, the the network is the star, and not the individuals. Um, with that in mind, maybe Trump is just their star now. And post Trump, the network will just keep humming along without him. But if he does try to launch a rival network yeah. or some other stunt like that, uh, it, it it could be it could be a pain. It could be a pain for Fox. I guess I'm much of the view that the audience is so loyal; they've created such a monopoly. And they've told their viewers practically every day for four or five years not to trust anything else that uh, they've got a real grip on them, on the on the audience.
1: I think this is such an interesting uh, question as to if Trump were to lose now or if he leaves in 2025, um, does he it it seems very much like his next play would be to start a to 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 either take over Fox from within or. Or start a rival, uh, you know, you know, OAN or some other rival network. You wrote a little bit about this in your in your epilogue to your to your book, but somehow or other, he is going to be on television uh, come January twenty first, two thousand and twenty one, regardless of the results of the election, and that is going to be a challenge to the political system. And to the ability of uh, democracy to move forward, but it's also going to be a challenge to Fox News if he's not on their air.
2: Mm, right, right. You know the the um, the possibility of him having a show on Fox then would come up. Right? Would he, would he want a show on Fox? Would he want a nightly perch on the channel that's already number one, as opposed to trying to go and building something on his own? Um, but then I, I think I would ask a question. Then d- does America want to watch a loser? Right? Like does if if his brand is suddenly loser and uh, loser with potential criminal liability or uh, other scandals in his wake, is that a compelling TV show? Now, of course, I think the counter is pretty obvious. He will say that he's uh, had something stolen from him, that it was rigged. I think he's away. setting
1: that up already.
2: Right. Don't you wish you could take a nap and wake up in six months and not have to go through the next few months? Of- <laughs> I think it's going to be a
1: very convulsive time for our country. I don't think that yeah. there's any way around it because for Donald Trump, there are only two outcomes that he will accept. One is that he wins and the other is his assertion that it was stolen from him. There is not. Donald Trump will never utter the words, the people have spoken and I accept their verdict. That is not within his, unless the verdict is that he won. And, uh, you know, so I, I think he sees this as a, a, uh, a way of galvanizing his movement for his next uh, uh, for his next project.
2: But Brian- I think this is where my disappointment is. I'm sure it's where you have disappointment. Right. Which is there, there was a point early on, I, I believed that Ryan's Priebus and Sean Spicer would do the right thing. I thought that Hope Hicks would do the right thing. I thought they would stop him from saying things like enemy of the people. I thought that Mitch McConnell would intervene before we get to the point where the President is uh creating this narrative about a rigged election, but clearly every single person that you look to and you hope they're going to do the right thing, they don't well, up
1: to and including the fact that so many anonymous sources are coming forward in these books now uh but won't step forward in public and make mm-hmm, make right. make right. these comments, and some for reasons that they see uh, as their their duty whether it's former military people or people who served in the administration but it'll be interesting to see what happens in the next uh in the next few weeks on that but let's talk about the news media itself and the impact Mm. of trump on the news media you you know uh there was that famous interview with leslie stahl <laughs> uh, I, I guess it was an aside with her at a program where she said to him, I said, you know that is getting tired. Why are you doing this meaning dogging the media in the way it does you're doing it over and over and it's boring Stahl said he said, you know why I do it I do it to discredit you all I do it to discredit you all and demean you all so when you write negative stories about me, no one will believe you which is uh, that's sort of a a, a precept of totalitarianism uh, but it also, We can see the effect of it, Brian. You can see, at least among his voters, uh, that, uh, you know, there are things, I mean, reported this morning, the Attorney General (laughs) of the United States is going to try and intervene the Justice Department in a case, a civil case over defamation that that goes to an alleged rape that the president committed decades ago. What does the Department of Justice have to do with that case? This would be a DEFCON 1 story. Uh, in any other time, but it uh, there's so much, and the president just he dismisses it all. And and uh, when the news media calls him on this, you 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 I watch your show faithfully. You are a. Uh, uh, you know, you, you,
2: I've been trying, I've been trying to call it out.
1: <laughs> yes, you have. But, but the result of it is you call it out and then people say, well, you're, you're just biased. You're fake news. You're on the, and what, what does it mean for the, not just the news media, but the country to have the news media drawn into uh, this sort of polarity that Trump wants to create?
2: Right. right. It's really two different medias in America. There is a pro-Trump media. And we all know the outlets, and then there's the rest. And I don't know what I would call it reality based, right? But that can come across as condescending. Um, and I don't know how that gets repaired. Maybe it doesn't, David. Maybe 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 this is just the way it is for the for the foreseeable future. Um, what we see with Fox and the pro Trump media is just this endless game of what aboutism, the world's like least entertaining game. Um, you know, I remember um, this former commentator at Fox saying to me. When you're with Tucker or Laura or Sean Hannity one-on-one, they don't defend Trump. They just tell you how bad the Democrats are, right? They just rant about the Democrats to tell you the liberals are evil and they're ruining America, um, and that then justifies what you're doing, what your side's doing. Yeah. It's what Gary Kasparov once said about if you're a thief, you accuse your enemies of thievery. If you're, right. if you're corrupt, accuse your rivals of corruption. Right? Everyone does it. I mean, this is uh, how do we repair something that, that that is that broken?
1: Well, this is a central challenge uh, for our. Democracy, But so, too, is the kind of absence of fact or the acceptance of fact. Uh, and we see the cost of that in this pandemic. Uh, when a large segment of the population took their cues from the president, when he told him when he told them, apparently now we know, um, despite his knowledge otherwise, that the thing was not serious, that they didn't have to wear masks, that, uh, you know, a whole bunch of people listen to him. We saw a rally last night. Uh, I guess in North Carolina, uh, I forget where he was last night. Uh, where uh, he was in Florida, North Carolina. People not wearing masks, bun- bunched together. Um, and you know, there are uh, there are consequences to a fact-free kind of environment in which the you know uh, the leaders just deny. Deny facts, and what we see in
2: front of us. Yeah, yeah,
1: I don't know. I mean, you know, I mean, I watch you. uh, What I was going to ask you is, do you feel discomfort at times because you're very vehement? (laughs) You're very, very vehement. Uh, You're passionate about this, and your passion is obvious. Uh, Do you worry that you'll you'll get sucked into that uh, vortex, uh, and that people will say, "Well, he's just another anti-Trump voice out there."
2: Right. Uh, I think if the president woke up tomorrow and uh, relied on the highest quality news in the world and didn't make anything up and didn't lie to the public, then there wouldn't be anything to fact check. Right. And we would talk about uh, how accurate he was and and how he uh, how his speech was full of uh, correct information. And then all of a sudden it wouldn't sound anti-Trump. It would just sound like we're talking about the truth. We have to stay tethered to the truth, even when there's this, you know, autocratic type way, uh, attempt to, to dismantle truth. Um, but it is true that I do get angry on the air sometimes. I get, I do get, I do get, um, frustrated sometimes. And I think I'm channeling the frustration of the audience. Uh, I, I hope that I am. I think that I am. Um, I, I think the sometimes that's the best way for us to get through this time in American life is to put our, share what we are feeling, share what we are going through, um, you know, it, it, I don't know any other way. I, but here's why I'm a little bit more optimistic about future of the media. Not about political coverage, per se, but about the power of these mediums, uh, television and, and, and digital. When there is a tornado warning in your community, the news anchors on your local station are not red or blue. They are not pro or anti-Trump. It does not matter. You still do trust your meteorologist, even if they told you to bring an umbrella last week and it didn't rain. When there is an actual threat, you still trust your local weatherman. You still trust your local news anchor. Um, I think the the distrust of political media, all the noise about anti and pro-Trump and all that stuff, um, it, it's all true and it's a huge problem. But I do think at the end of the day, when your local newspaper or local news website tells you about the number of coronavirus cases in your community, you do tend to, I think most people still do trust that information. Is that too, am I being too bullish? No, no, no. I
1: think that that is true. I think it leads to the question about what the state of our local news is. I mean, we've got, right. we've lost thousands of news outlets around this country because the economic model yeah. has collapsed. We've got right. Sinclair uh, buying up uh, large numbers of those news outlets and 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 skewing uh, news coverage. Um, and, and so, you know, th- th- I think the great, Crisis in media is not at the national level now; it is at the local level, where there is, uh, you know. I grew up in the Chicago Tribune newsroom. That my heart breaks every time I walk by the the August Tribune Tower, which is now being turned into condominiums. You know, and that is to me symbolic. You know what stands where the Chicago Sun Times used to stand when I was uh, working as a journalist: Uh, Trump Tower. (laughs) Uh, is what stands where the Chicago Sun-Times used to stand. So, yeah, Mm. I mean, I think that is a great crisis, and we haven't really figured out yet how to solve that because the economics are uh, undermining undermining the goal of quality, well-funded, good local journalism. So I I don't know if you have hopeful words about that.
2: (laughs) There's so many well-meaning people that want to solve this problem and are focused on it. But it is a massive problem. Yeah. Right in Chicago, for example, this attempt to, to take the Chicago Tribune local has not gotten off the ground, no. right? even though reporters and, and others have tried to find a way to buy the paper. And, and now now they've, over.
1: yes, and they've fallen in the thrall of, of private equity, you know, and, and, and uh, hedge funds and so on. And it, the, the it is being basically uh, stripped down for scrap, uh, which is a painful, painful thing to watch. You know, I, I mean, I grew up in, I think, one of the great newsrooms uh, and I saw what a great newspaper looks like. It doesn't look like mm. what we have. Right. Uh-huh. and And
2: we're going to look back historically and say that, in these four critical years where local news was being uh decimated uh being cut down, instead of a narrative from the top that was about trying to restore trust and and gain support for local news, we had a president yelling the word "fake" whenever he was upset and I think we will look back and say, from a journalistic standpoint about the business model, these were four wasted years, yeah in, in terms of what what are policies that can support a sustainable local news uh industry? What what can the government do differently? We can't even have you can't even start those conversations. I think
1: there are efforts going on that are laudable uh, all over the country to to experiment with alternative models, some more successful than others. But you're quite right when when the president of the United States is waging a war against the news media generally, when the message is you can't trust the news look he's even and I, I should ask you about this before we go out i mean you know he's been frustrated with fox as supportive as fox news has been if if uh, if they run a story that he doesn't like he's i don't know what happened to fox news we may have to go somewhere else this is what makes me wonder about the alternative uh you know, the challenging of Fox News by Trump after right. this. You know, they have, they have actually very good polling, Fox News. I think their polls are really good. He has, yes, com- yeah. he has roundly denounced them for running these polls, calling them fake polls uh, because, because they reflect the reality, which is he's not in very good shape right now and he doesn't like it. So his expectation is that they should be state media. And so even Fox News get, comes under, his, his view is that the news media should be subjugated to the r- rulers of the country, that they should dictate uh, what facts are facts and what facts are not facts. And that is not democracy. Now I sound like you. And it's
2: astonishing. <laughs> hey, uh, I can take a Sunday off if you're free. <laughs> uh, sounds wonderful. I, uh, once this book tour wraps up, you know, I tell you, the, 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 this is where I come back to Maybe I was so naive that I thought somebody would help him. Like, didn't in the Obama White House, there were people to help.
1: Look, I think there were people there at the beginning who tried. There were people to help us. There were people. Yeah. Who, there were people who tried. Those people uh, systematically left, were eliminated, right. were pushed out, right, right. um, yeah. and the people who are left are enablers. And he is calling the shots. He is his own communications director. Kaylee right. McEnany is uh, is just an instrument of his uh, of his rhetoric. Um, you know, which is uh, you 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 sign on to be a spokesperson for a pathological liar. You have to lie. That's a that's a that's a mm. a uh, demand of the job.
2: And well, then the the idea that you know you have these news anchors at Fox that are caught in this dynamic. This is um you, know, you talked about Trump attacking Fox. Well. Because he doesn't want news on Fox News. He wants propaganda on Fox News. Right. And I I describe in in the book what it's like when these weekend anchors get tweeted about where Trump attacks them on Twitter. And, uh, you know, Arthel Neville, Leland Vitter, you know, they, they start to get these racist screeds and hateful screeds filling up their inboxes, filling up their Twitter mentions. And it's coming from their own viewers. Yeah. And that's the crazy thing about Trump's power. Like, I get it as a CNN anchor. Whenever Hannity attacks me, I get a lot of nasty messages and I, I usually laugh and, and once in a while I cringe, but I expect it when it's Hannity attacking me. It's different when you get hate mail from your own viewers. That's what Trump does. He, yeah. he causes Fox's viewers to turn against Fox because he doesn't want news. He wants propaganda. And, and then Fox does not defend their staff. Fox doesn't put out the kinds of statements that CNN does or that the New York times does because they're stuck between this rock and this hard place between Trump and the audience. But you know what? They're not stuck. I shouldn't say stuck. They chose this spot. <laughs> they chose to be in this spot. Well, and they're cashing the checks. I mean, that's, they are a profit machine. An executive said to me, we print money in the basement. You know, I think that's one of the underappreciated aspects of this story. Um, That uh, and and it's why some people stay at Fox. I mean, some of these sources, right, some of them left in the in in the in the making of this book, but others are still there. And one of the reasons they stay is it's very lucrative. Another reason is they don't know if they have any other options in the news business. Once you've been at Fox long enough, yeah, Uh, that is a a remarkable dynamic. Um, And and what I always say is, you know, I wish some of them, once they do leave, would speak out, would tell their experience about being at Fox.
1: The book is hoax. Fox News and the Dangerous Distortion of Truth. Brian Stelter, you can see him. He's a ubiquitous presence on on CNN, and you can see him on Reliable Sources on Sunday morning, and read him uh, all over CNN.com, including his newsletter. Brian, really good to be with
2: you. You too. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Emily Stanitz. The show is also produced by Miriam Annenberg, Jeff Fox, Hannah McDonald, and Allison Siegel. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Courtney Coop, Ashley Lusk, and Megan Marcus. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu.